Hello and welcome to another episode of Laps Gamer Radio. I'm your host Stuart Neil and joining me tonight is very special guest Eric Jordan from Codename Entertainment. Good evening Eric. Good evening. Glad to be here. Well it's what lunchtime for you <laughs> or thereabouts. Yeah 12.30. Yeah finished my, finished my salad and uh, chicken so nice healthy lunch over here in uh, Canada. Yeah. Where are you based in Canada then? Uh, on the west coast in uh, Victoria, British Columbia, Canada, which is on Vancouver Island, not too far from Vancouver or Seattle in the US. Oh, okay. You are the CEO of Codename Entertainment. Can you give us a little sort of potted history um, of Codename Entertainment? Sure, yeah. Um, the company, I guess actually this fall, it'll be our 10th anniversary uh, it was started by two childhood friends, David and Justin, um, David Whitaker and Justin Stocks. They started the company um, right when Facebook was just opening up as a platform and you get out doing Flash games. Um, the two of them have been best friends since they were six years old and mm-hmm. had wanted to create a video game company since they were in middle school. And then fast forward several years to being finishing their university degrees, uh, they went to University of Victoria, and uh, that's when sort of Facebook opened up and they mm. put out their first game on there and uh, and suddenly had revenue and a company and so off they went. And for the first four years, um, they sort of tried to build the company, but the reality was is that they knew about building games, so not so much about building companies. Um, and so the first year was great, and then it got progressively more difficult to make flash games on Facebook, as everyone knows. Yeah. Um, and so after four years of kind of going at their own, um, I got introduced to them through a mutual friend, and I had made the decision to get into the video game industry myself. Um, and so I bought a third of the company and took over as CEO, and uh, and off we went from there. And I've been here for five years now. And I guess in terms of games, you started. We started off uh, very much web, flash, Facebook stuff, and we did stuff on Congregate.com, mm-hmm. and Armor Games, um, so various websites. And then our most recent, or our last game, before the D and D one that we'll be talking about, was uh, Crusaders Lost Idols, which launched a little over two and a half years ago. Uh, we launched that one on web first on Congregate and Armor Games, where it still sits as one of the most played games on both of those platforms. Mm-hmm. And then we launched on Steam. It was the first game that we launched on Steam. And I think, I, I actually haven't checked, you know, in the last little bit, but um, I think we're sitting in the top 200 most played games on Steam uh, with Crusaders Lost Idols. So that's really cool, mm-hmm. especially because it's like, like I say, over two and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also launched on mobile, so iOS and Android. So that game exists across web, Steam, and mobile. So lots of stuff. And then uh, we launched a D&D game last fall in September. Mm-hmm. That's um, Idle Champions of the Forgotten Realms. Absolutely. That is the one. Now, obviously, that's a, a D&D licensed game and what have you. Mm-hmm. Yep. Did the concept of the game come before the license? Uh, yeah, we, well, we've done Crusaders Lost Idols, which is um, the same genre of idle clickers, incremental games, kind of depending on where you come from, you might use different words to describe that genre mm-hmm. of game. And um, so we'd had you know a lot of success with that game and it done well for us. And we felt that um, it would be a really good fit with an RPG type kind of title. And mm-hmm. I played tabletop Dungeons and Dragons for forever, ever since, uh, well, I guess AD&D was the first set that I ever played and you know when Basic came out and all that kind of yeah. stuff before there was editions and all those things. Um, and you know, I just I thought it would be 
just so awesome to do it with Dungeons and Dragons. And conveniently, one of the nice things about where we're located in the world is the people that uh, own the license for Dungeons and Dragons and of course make D&D, Wizards of the Coast are based in Seattle. Um, and so nice and close to us. And uh, I was able to build a, a relationship with Wizards and talk to them about kind of this idea of taking this idle clicker kind of genre and merging it with not so much the rule system of Dungeons and Dragons, but really the the lore and setting of Forgotten Realms and all the characters that everyone knows, like Minsk and Boo and Brunor and all those other ones. Hmm. How is working with Wizards of the Coast been for you? Um, it took a while uh, to sort of get their attention, honestly. So we're hmm. uh, you know we're a small company. Um, we have uh, 17 employees, um, so you know, not not massive, especially in comparison yeah. to Wizards. And Wizards, of course, is owned by Hasbro, which is, you know, one larger company owned by even another larger company. Hmm. Um, and we've never done any work with licensed IP before. All of the games that we've made uh, over our years have always been IP that we've created. Uh, but we just felt it would be a really great fit with Dungeons and Dragons. So it took a little bit to kind of convince them that you know we were worth uh, kind of listening to and that we had an idea. Um, and then, and then once we got into it, it's been really great. Um, they're certainly a large company, and there is—I mean, there's a fair amount of steps and hurdles to kind of go through and bureaucracy we've got to work through. But yeah. Wizards—it's a very well-oiled machine of bureaucracy, if you will. And so, <laughs> you know, the producers that we work with, you know, really help guide us through all of that, um, and so to make sure that kind of everything, uh, everything comes out and is all tickety boo, if you will. Yeah. Uh, how thick was the book on D&D lore uh, that they handed you before the start of the process? Well, the nice thing is, is that stuff is mostly public through, mm. you know, and we're set in a, a fifth edition version of Forgotten Realms. And mm. so, um, you know, that stuff is all publicly available information. So but while we were still working on the proposal and kind of fleshing out the idea of what the game would look like and doing some conceptual artwork and stuff like that, um, you know, so we had a whole bunch of copies of fifth edition, went out and bought them all. It was actually one of the things that's really fun about doing a uh, Dungeons and Dragons game as a Dungeons and Dragons fanboy myself is it's a great justification for buying all sorts of extra Dungeons and Dragons stuff. <laughs> um, and then also bringing in a whole bunch of stuff from home, um, which I think makes my wife somewhat happy to clean out her basement and me bringing in various pieces of older D&D stuff. And I'm like, oh, this is where it began. And here's the basic set. And, you know. So I actually even bought myself a copy of the original collector set, mm -hmm. um, collector's edition, the OCS white box um, that I found, um, uh, I guess, right as we were working on the proposal. So that would have been December of 2016. I found it in a used bookstore in Victoria mm -hmm. and was like, this is the perfect birth or Christmas gift for myself. And I will buy this. <laughs> so yeah, so now all that stuff, you know, or at least a, a subset of my large amount of D&D collection now resides in the office. So, mm. uh, How involved were Wizards of the Coast in the development process? Uh, very involved in terms of look and feel and character designs. Um, so there's like a whole bunch of stuff around that. Um, not as involved in terms of you know UI or core game loop or pieces like that. I mean, they provided some feedback on that, but that was really very much our responsibility on how we would, uh, how we would move that forward. It was uh, much more around um, you know what are the kind of iconic elements of certain characters. One mm -hmm. of the things that's interesting that I had not kind of realized because we hadn't done IP stuff before as a, as a studio, um, but in hindsight was like, oh, that's actually really great for us, was if we had worked with 
a different IP instead of D&D and it had been something like like a Disney IP or something like that. Mm-hmm. Those ones have very, very specific looks. You know, Mickey Mouse needs to look a very specific yeah. kind of way or, you know, the characters from Toy Story or something like that. Um, whereas Brunor, you know, there are iconic elements of Brunor, but you don't actually have to have him look a very, very specific way. And so as long as you capture those iconic elements, but in your own style, that was okay. And so it allowed us to sort of do our own take on these classic characters, which which was actually a huge amount of fun. And the Wizards team really was excited to see sort of our take on those characters. So we were able to bring our feel to the games. Um, I, our studio has a, you know, we've been doing kind of 2D art for a long time. And so we have a very particular kind of look of how that is. And so we're able to do that within the lens of Dungeons and Dragons, where if we'd had a different IP, we wouldn't have been able to nearly had that freedom around it. So that was a really interesting part, kind of sort of like, oh, that worked out really well for us. I'm so glad that that's how it happened. How constrained um, was the project working with the license um, and an IP? Uh, well, I mean, constrained in the sense that um, my single biggest concern was that someone who really loved Dungeons and Dragons would feel that we were doing something that was sort of inauthentic to mm. to this game that I personally love a huge amount, and and. It, at a certain point, you can't please everyone, but you know, I wanted to please the majority of people who would kind of look at this and go like, okay, this is a game that is really made by people who who love Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, I think it's such a, I don't know, it's such an iconic game and um, one that has such deep emotional resonance for both people in the studio as well as for you know um, fans of fans of Dungeons and Dragons that hmm. I really really wanted to make sure that we were true to that, and so that that seemed that was one of the biggest constraints and then the good thing about working with wizards was you know anytime we had kind of lore questions or things that hadn't been published yet for fifth edition but we kind of were getting ahead of where things might be we could sort of check and get all the information from the appropriate lore people there to make sure that we were on side with things and so that was always uh it was good it was actually a really good process but you wanted to be really i don't know it's like having a baby or something you want to be very careful with it that's how i felt yeah You'd mentioned there about the fans and obviously getting a D&D license and what have you brings with it uh, sort of an inbuilt fan base and what have you. Mm-hmm. How much sort of um, sort of community engagement with the fan base has there been and has it been relatively positive? Yeah, um, it's... So if we step back and we talk about the genre of the game, so Idol Champions of Forgotten Realms is a idol clicker game. So we use that name to describe the genre. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a particular genre of games that uh, focuses in on really around uh, progression, kind of like a, an RPG progression loop where you, sort of, you have a quest, you do some stuff, you turn in the quest and you get more powerful, wash, rinse, repeat, as well as um, it focuses in on sort of a collection mechanic where you enjoy collecting lots of things. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think about why people play games, there's like lots of reasons that someone might want to play a game. They might want to play a game to demonstrate their mastery and maybe some heavy PvP elements and stuff like that. Um, and a lot of games will touch on several different motivations, whereas idle games really hone in on that RPG progression loop and and kind of that collection mechanic. And if you really enjoy that mechanic, those mechanics, then you'll respond really positively to an idle game. And of course, a lot of people who enjoy Dungeons & Dragons enjoy those mechanics. 
But if you don't, if you enjoy Dungeons and Dragons for different kinds of mechanics and different kind of motivations, then you'd look in that again and go, I don't really see why this is a fit. Um, and it's and that's one of our kind of experiences with idle games that if you like what they're about, then you tend to really really like them. Hmm. And, but if you like kind of other aspects of video games, you kind of confuse why someone might play this game. You're like, I don't. Why would anyone do this? Um, and so within the the context of Dungeons and Dragons, our premise had been that um, as a D and D player myself, and as someone who really enjoys idle games, I'm like, okay, I know there's a fair amount of overlap between these two things. We had done some work with a uh, so this firm that does studies on gamer motivations around idle games and stuff like that was specifically what we'd studied with them um, called Quantic Foundry and worked with a guy named Nikki, a researcher on that, just to sort of help validate those assumptions. And so that'd come back positively. And so then when we launched in the fan base, the sort of expected reaction was that the majority of people were like, oh, this is really great. I totally see what you're doing here. And there are some people who are like, I really don't understand what you're doing here. <laughs> so, that, but thankfully that was a relatively small group of people and so our, our you know our rating on steam has, has sat you know has sat well so that's good mm -hmm. and it's definitely a diehard fan base we um we had an event going out where um we had a new character uh, uh regis was coming out and one of the uh players had pulled some of the graphics out of the client um which are actually the graphics are actually stored in a modified format and they'd like reverse engineered that and figured out and got the copy of the character. And then it said that they felt that the character's coloring of their hair was slightly wrong and so started providing feedback back that way. So that that is an example of the kind of dedicated fans that we have for Dungeons and Dragons, which is actually really cool because, mm. you know, we really love Dungeons and Dragons. So that is awesome. Yeah. Now, obviously, with it being an idle clicker game, there is a certain amount of risk there involved with obviously people dismissing it as not being very good and what have you, and you know, um, people who don't necessarily like that genre of games. Mm -hmm. um, and also the fact that they are, you know, predominantly free to play games as well mm -hmm. and going for, you know, making their money out of the little DLC bits that are in app purchases and things like that. Yeah. Um, was the game always envisaged as a free-to-play clicker game? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So the, both of those pieces. Um, all the games that we've done have all been free-to-play. Um, it's very much what we as a studio are good at making is free-to-play games that mm -hmm. um, primarily single-player free-to-play games. We've done a little bit of experimentation in um, sort of some games that have had some PvP and stuff like that, but the big titles that we've done and the title that we've done right before this one, Crusaders Lost Idols, was a you know single-player, free-to-play game. Um, and so it's certainly our area of expertise over premium games. Um, and then trying to come up with uh, ways of making money, ways of monetizing that feel fair to both people who um, sort of don't want to spend, people who want to spend a little bit, and people who want to spend a lot, and sort of have something that feels good for all of those different groups of people. And we've, mm. we work really hard to try to balance across those different uh, segments of the folks playing the game. Um, but yeah, there is certainly some level of stigma of people who uh, talk about free-to-play games, go, oh, I, I hate free-to-play games. Um, yeah. There's definitely some people who feel that way, you know, and they, it's a free game, they don't have to play it, so that's fine. <laughs> Very true. How have the sort of the sales for the uh, the DLC packages and the in-app purchases been for yourselves? Um, you know, have they been, met your expectations? Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, they've exceeded our expectations. So that's been great. Awesome. Yeah, no, 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 it's been really positive. And uh, as a, as as we were discussing, the the D and D fan base is pretty uh, a very devoted fan base into into their games, and uh, and this has been been no exception. You know, people 
you know, log thousands of hours in the game. And uh, yeah, I've been really, really engaged, you know, and it's really engaged community. We, um, one of the cool things about working with Wizards of the Coast, they have a, like a Twitch um, channel that they do on Dungeons and Dragons. So we do a kind of AMA, both on Reddit as well as on Twitch uh, once a week. And so, you know, players can come in and sort of see us playing the game and talk to us about design choices and things that we're doing. And I think that that feedback loop between a small studio and an engaged community is really both critical for the business and also one of the most rewarding aspects of being surviving in the small world of indie game development, right? Yeah. It's like engaging with people who are playing your game and really enjoying it mm. um, is, is a lot of fun. How much of an impact um, does things like Twitch and even sort of YouTube gaming and what have you have for the smaller games? Is it very important um, to sort of get either streaming yourself as a company together or even approaching influencers and things to do it for you? I think that idle games as a genre is a lot, it's a lot less important mm. than kind of overall, right? So if you're playing, you know, if, you, if you're making PUBG or, you know, all sorts of other games and it's like highly important to engage influencers because idle games are a much more passive experience in terms of playing them and a lot of the the core kind of decisions that a player is making is less stuff that's sort of happening visually on the screen and more they're thinking about the strategy and who they're going to level up and how they're going to approach certain tasks and sort of more the meta of the game it's i think I, I don't know. We haven't found that um, influencers, we have some people who cover it, and, and that's obviously awesome. Um, but if you look at the sort of top charts of what's being covered on Twitch and stuff like that, you know, it's dominantly uh, weighted towards PvP style games. Yeah. Um, so what we've used it for is less of a acquisition mechanism, if you will, like, you know, if you had an influencer, big influencer covering your game. And it's much more about really uh, a way of engaging with our community and talking to the community because of course there's an immediacy of you know like we're on they're on and we're chatting and they're seeing and we're going back and forth we're doing some raffles all that kind of stuff there's an immediacy mm -hmm. to that and so we use that as really a way of engaging in sort of a feedback loop and uh not so much around acquisition oh, okay how do you feel about the gaming market in general then um gosh well, let's see. I'm doing a bunch of planning for uh, for 2018. We sort of gotten gotten the D D game out, and that was a big kind of I don't know. Every time we launch a game, it feels somewhat like a uh, a snake swallowing sort of I don't know some large thing a mouse or something like that. <laughs> kind of slowly processing it. You know, we can come up with this for us. The I guess the last year and a half or so was consumed with both really solidifying the pitch on the D&D game, getting the license with Wizards, going into production on the game, getting the game finally out, and then and then once it's out, stabilizing it, because we sort of have this very active live service component for our games. We've got new content going out every week and just getting the pipeline for that happening. So it's not mm -hmm. just sort of a crazy last minute thing every time, but is much more, um, uh, doesn't, doesn't involve as much pulling out your hair to get it all done. Yeah. Um, and so we're kind of like, just seeing the other side of that now and the whole studio if you're here you can kind of feel this sort of like collective sigh of like okay it's out and it's stable and we've got a cadence for uh, new content so that's really going well um so i've been doing a bunch of planning about like okay looking up given that that all happens you know now now what do we think about and um i think it's a tough time like 2018 I think it's a tough time to be to be a small studio. I think I think it's just a tough time to be in the games industry overall from the perspective mm -hmm. that there are really no new kind of 
green fields that you can go off into in terms of game development. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're the last sets of green fields like, you know, mobile and steam have all gotten, you know, those are all very mature markets now. Yeah. And the amount of games that come out on those markets is just so insanely high that breaking through the white noise within that is really tough. Um, not that you can't survive, but I think that, you know, as those markets have matured, there's going to be kind of this natural mm, kind of shaking out kind of culling that happens in each of those spaces. Um, the nice thing for us is that we've got very dedicated fans and we've got a very consistent cadence of all of this uh, live servicing our games that allow us to get away from saying like one of the challenges like with a premium game is you make all your money up front and then the money sort of you know goes down slowly over time um, which means you need to have that next hit and then the next hit and the next hit and if hits are harder because each of these markets are maturing um, I think that can put you in a more difficult spot. So, I mean, that's just supposition, mm -hmm. really, because I don't make indie or make premium games. But um, for us, it's nice to have sort of this nice recurring revenue from fans that we engage with every week and all that kind of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I think it is. It's tough in a world where, you know, what Steam had, you know, just under eight thousand games that came out last year. So a lot of games. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's more that the platform owners, um, for example, Valve or HIO, Google and Apple, can do to kind of help create the sort of the storefronts and things like that, or maybe give a little bit of better weighting to sort of new games and things that come out? I think it's tough, you know, because on one side, as developers, you know, we want like a level of editorial that you know works in our favor right like, you yeah. know, if, if they're going to give you lots of featuring and stuff like that you're like yeah more editorial like that but um sometimes you know it doesn't work in your favor in which case you're like oh i want it more democratic and just sort of you know everyone to have an access to it um i think it's uh like that's a real tough balancing act um and i, I, I huge pieces for those platforms to get Ideally, but in my mind, better and better at kind of figuring out like, okay, Eric likes these kind of games, so I'm going to surface these sorts of games to Eric, mm. um, as compared to you know, Eric doesn't like uh, hidden object games, and so I'm not going to show a match three or hidden object game to Eric because he's yeah. never once played one, and so odds are he doesn't want to play one. So I'll keep you know presenting things that he likes. You know, I think that that's great. Um, I think it's just it's uh, we're we're living. Uh, in the world where there's just thousands of games coming out and so there's a huge amount of choice for consumers which is lovely yeah. but uh, makes it tough for devs hmm. what one piece of advice would you give to an, any other developer in respect to sort of what they're working on or sort of persevering um, within the industry uh, I think it's it's about really knowing your strengths and playing to your strengths and recognizing that for now we're in mature markets, which means that it's gonna to be tough to get players to get eyeballs on your game and actually get installs and people playing your game. That's gonna be hard. And so you're gonna to wanna to think about, you know, how you can maintain those relationships for as long as possible, really service those players as well as you can, and hopefully create ongoing revenue streams from servicing those players so that you're not as tied to, you know, sort of a churn and burn mentality of getting new players in, burning through them and getting a new set of players, because that's just less and less an option in, in the mature markets that we have right now. Mm -hmm.
One of the things that's come up recently a lot on Twitter is sort of about the toxicity um, within sort of games development or whatever, or just the fact that it's a very hard job to be in purely because of the expectations companies have on the developers and what have you for the companies. There's the crunch, there's you know work-life balance and things like that. Is this something that you deliberately try and address within your company? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, certainly um, one of the great things about being in a company that focuses um, less on kind of these big launches and much more around live service and getting weekly content out is once we have that cadence down, um, we can kind of regularly hit that. And if you've got something going out every week, if it instead of going out on a Thursday, goes out on a Friday, it's not the end of the world. Um, Very different than if you've got, you know, the next FIFA title or something like that, like, you know, can't shift and you've got all these marketing commitments that have been spent towards it and stuff like that. And so I think one of the theories I've sort of had around crunch is that it partially evolves out of having these fixed deadlines that are set, you know, some years in advance sometimes yeah. when the reality is, is game development is got so much element of art in it in terms of like is the emotional experience you're creating for players, the emotional experience you're trying to create for players. And that's like it's really hard to go into a development process going like, yep, yeah, we know how to do this and this will just happen and it's all guaranteed and da 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 da. Um, and so as a result of that, I think when you get yourself into deadlines, especially ones that have, you know, huge amounts of uh, marketing dollars attached to like hitting a particular date and a bunch of commitments around that, it becomes very difficult to move. And so as a result of that, you have this massive kind of crunch. And then, you know, the industry does, it seems to do it for a while. And then everyone kind of goes like, wow, this is just the way it happens. Um, we generally kind of avoid that. Um, mm. And especially once we're up and operational and live servicing a game, then, you know, yeah, we can Right now, we've been playing a lot of Fortnite. So, you know, five o'clock, <laughs> five o'clock hits, everyone sort of fires up Fortnite and uh, plays sort of the free to play version of PUBG. Well, that's not too bad, then. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, but it's definitely something that we've talked about and thought about. The sort of the three of us that own it, you know, think a lot about kind of the culture of the business that we're building and what do we want to have happen here. And there are a lot of downsides to having a, a small company, but one of the upsides is you have a huge amount of control over the kind of culture that is within that company and what that workplace yeah. feels like. Because you spend so much time with these people, you're like, I want to build a workplace that I want to be in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With Idle Champions um, already being out and what have you, what are your plans for 2018? Um, so we have some more things that haven't been announced about uh, Idle Champions um, in terms of other platforms. So you can mm-hmm. look forward to seeing some, uh, some exciting new announcements around new platforms for Idle Champions. So we're busily working in the background on that right now um and then uh, we'll work on new games so yeah we always kind of support the current stuff and then work on some new games uh, take mm-hmm. our time on that but nothing to announce on that just yet fair enough thank you very much eric um for coming on and uh guesting on the show and what have you and it's been absolutely lovely talking to you at this stage and whenever I'm doing interviews and things, I always pass it over to our guests to sort of give little shout outs to um, any developers or any games or whatever that you think a lot of more people should be made aware of. Um, so go ahead and plug anything that you want to. Oh, sure. Um, so there is, so coming to the, like some of the difficulties of discovery and stuff like that on Steam, there's a game on Steam called Arena Gods that is a local multiplayer you know, couch co-op kind of game uh, mm-hmm. where you're all gladiators and you go around and it's got the kind of ragdoll sort of animations with your uh, your gladiator guys. And uh, but that game 
It's tons of fun. I've played it a bunch, um, both at home with my kids. And then at Extra Life, we do a big Extra Life thing. It was a big hit during uh, Extra Life. And so we, uh, we played a lot of that. But uh, looking at the Steam Spy numbers, I always feel, um, I don't know the devs at all, other than I'm like, oh, come on, guys. This is a really great game. It's sort of <laughs> sad that uh, not more people have been aware of it. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much, Eric. And um, just, yeah, um, I, Idle Champions is, it's enjoyable. Um, I think it's the fact that it takes a different format to other idle clicker games, what have you, and it does feel a lot more traditional in a gaming sense um, compared to some of those other ones where it's just literally clicking to see numbers going up. At least there's a lot more action and things going up on screen. Um, mm-hmm. and so it's yeah it's a it's a much better game in that respect and um obviously thank you to clive uh clive gorman for getting in contact with us as well um after we uh, sort of tweeted about idle champions as well and uh giving us the promo codes and things oh yeah i know um for the boxes as well so that was really good of you yeah no happy to help out and uh, yeah no it's too bad that uh, clive couldn't be here today off sick dealing with sickness and kids being sick and all the joys of sickness with young children so <laughs> yeah yeah no uh, thanks for uh thanks for covering the game we really appreciate it yeah no thank you very much okay so thank you very much and uh goodbye okay take care <laughs>